Welcome. Thanks for joining us. You're about to hear a message from our Wednesday night Solid Rock Youth Group service. Solid Rock is a ministry of Living Word Family Church, and if you'd like to know more, check us out on our website at www.livingwordfamily.org. Five truths of spiritual warfare that we've talked over the last two weeks. It's a lot, but if you can give me the basic five, I will give you points. Are you looking it up, Johnny? Did you take notes? You took notes. You know what? I'm going to take that because taking, taking notes is good. Go ahead. You just have four? I have four ain't going to cut it. Well, I don't know why either, but give, give me the four you've got and see how well you remember five when you get done. Does anybody know the number five, the fifth one? Nope, that wasn't it. Anybody remember number five? All right. Number five, as believers in Christ, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. It's in Christ's power that we become invincible. Johnny, job, buddy. Catch me afterwards. You get a free snack. Very well done. So make sure you guys bring your notebooks. A pen, paper, something to take notes on because I want you, I want you guys to retain this information, okay? So the last couple weeks we covered those five things, those things that kind of basic truths about spiritual warfare, that we're involved in a war, and it's a war that we don't necessarily see going on around us. We can see the consequences of that war, we can see some things going on, and you know, maybe we think they're one thing when it's really a, there's a battle going on behind the scenes that we're just not quite aware of, but I want you guys to be aware of it, okay? Now, point number five, we're going to build on that to start to, to talk about what we're going to talk about tonight. So as believers in Christ, we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory, okay? How many of you guys are familiar with World War II? Quite a few of you. Most of you probably are, have, have hit that in uh, school so far, right, in your history classes? World War II, now I'm looking at the Pacific Theater, okay? There's probably some instances of, of this in Germany as well um, because communications were nearly as advanced as they are today. We dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, okay? 1946, I believe, 1946. And what did Japan do after they realized that they were in trouble? Okay. They surrendered, right? Everybody remember that? The emperor of Japan famously, uh, I don't remember what ship he was on, but famously signed the surrender, signed the, uh, uh, the, the, the peace treaty or whatever, because they just, they surrendered, they gave up, right? Now, do you think word got around about that to all the soldiers right away? No. There's still fighting going on in some of these outlying islands, okay? There's still fighting going on. Did you know that there were soldiers who died after Japan had surrendered. There's still guys fighting this battle. This war is still raging in their hearts and in their minds. They don't realize that, they're, that one side's already been victorious and the other side has already surrendered. There's still fighting going on, okay? We have to understand that we're fighting from a position of victory. In this spiritual warfare, in this battle that we're talking about, we are fighting from a position of victory, all right? Now, I'm going to go through these really quick. So if you're taking notes, if you need them later, I'll put them on the email for tomorrow, but I'm going to go through these pretty quick because I don't want to get uh, um, sidetracked. I'm going to give you five truths about this fighting from a position of victory, okay? Number one, Satan was defeated at the cross. 
Satan was defeated at the cross. So when Jesus died, he paid the price for what? For our sin. For our sin. That's number two. Sin's penalty was paid for all people for all time at the cross. That's when we have victory at the cross. It was done. It was paid for. It was taken care of. Number three, and at that point, sin's power was broken. So we see that Satan was defeated at the cross. Sin's penalty was paid because you guys know when somebody breaks the law, there has to be consequences, right? At least that's the way it's supposed to work. When somebody breaks the law, there need to be consequences. There's a penalty, okay? If you go too fast and a police officer pulls you over, unless they're feeling very graceful and give you a warning, which I've had happen, they will write you a ticket, which I have also had happen. An officer, you broke the law, you drove too fast, they write you out a ticket, there's the penalty. What do you have to do? You have to pay it, right? Or appear in court or whatever. I mean, there's, you know, whatever. But there's a penalty for breaking the law, just as is there is a penalty for sin. Now, it, it sucks because we're born into it, okay? We are born into sin nature, which means that even from the time we are little babies, we are guilty of sin because we've got sin coursing through our veins, all right? Not necessarily through any fault of our own. And as we grow up, we simply learn to, we simply, that's right, the sin gene is passed on. And as we grow up, we simply learn to sin better and better. Okay, just like babies learn, we learn. I mean, you don't, you do not have to teach kids to lie. I can tell you that from experience. They will do that on their own. Yeah, exactly. So we have a sin nature flowing through this, and there has to be a penalty for sin. Jesus paid that once for all at the cross. So Satan's defeated. The penalty for sin is taken, uh, is paid. Sin's power is broken. Because that penalty is paid, the power that sin has over us is broken. Number four, Satan and his army continue to wage guerrilla warfare to discourage, deceive, divide, destroy God's people and try to thwart God's plan. Okay? So, just as with our example of uh, uh, the Japan surrendering, right? Japan was defeated. Um, they, are, they were going to pay the penalty for you know, the war and for everything. The power of Japan was broken, right? But what happened? There were warriors out there still fighting. They were fighting to the death, okay? Because they believed in their cause, all right? The enemy hates us. Satan and his army hate us. They hate our guts. And they continue to fight that guerrilla warfare even though they've been defeated, even though the victory is ours and belongs to us through Christ Jesus, they fight that guerrilla warfare and they fight dirty. They try to discourage us, deceive us, divide us. How many times have we seen that? Even in our very own youth group, we've seen divisions, people who once were friends and who are no longer friends, because sometimes the most, the, just the dumbest reasons, the enemy will come to try to divide us and come between us. Why? Because when we're divided... We can't be as effective for the kingdom, right? What did Abraham Lincoln famously say? A house Very good. A house divided against itself will not stand. And number five, believers are commanded to equip and prepare. We are to equip and prepare for what? 
for the battle that we are facing, all right? We have to be equipped and prepared for this battle, all right? And we see that again in Ephesians 6, starting in 10. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the enemy. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but what? Against evil rulers, authorities of the unseen world. This spiritual warfare we're talking about here, okay? But what does God say? Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Be equipped. Put on God's armor. And that's what we're going to start talking about tonight. Put on God's armor. How do we do that? What does that look like? How do we prepare ourselves? How do we put on that armor that he's talking about? Well, we're going to continue on. In Ephesians, still in chapter 6, if you're taking notes, still in chapter 6, in verse 13, we see what this armor looks like. So Paul begins to paint a picture of this armor of God. Now, who remembers what's going on in Israel during this time? Who is occupying Israel? Does anybody know? Oh, come on, you guys. This is basic. Who is occupying Israel at this time in the New Testament? Rome. Thank you, Riley. Rome. Rome is occupying Israel. What is Rome known for? Uh, fake gods. Fake gods. Well, that's true. Fake gods. What is Rome really, what is Rome really good at? What's that? Yeah, that's right. Their army. Has anybody ever seen the uh, movies where Rome is depicted? I think Gladiator is the first one that comes to my mind, even though the whole movie is not based on war. Uh, nope, 300 was the Spartans. That was before Rome. Got you there. But we see Rome is very, very good at conquering and fighting. They have, a, they have an army that, that is second to none in the world at this time. So when Paul talks about putting on the armor of God, he starts to paint us a picture, okay? We don't need to get hung up on every little minute detail about what this armor means and everything like that. He's, just, he's simply painting with a brush to get us to visualize being equipped and prepared for the work of the kingdom. Now let me read you this verse 13. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. How will you be standing firm? If you're equipped. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. So we're going to start with the belt, the belt of truth. Jesus commands us, excuse me, well, we'll get to belt here in just a second. But Jesus commands us to put on this armor and do it quickly, all right? Now, Paul paints us the picture of a Roman soldier, and we'll, he'll, uh, he continues to go on there in the next, next week or so. We'll, uh, we'll cover the rest of that. But he talks about the belt. He talks about the shield. He talks about the sword. He talks about the helmet, okay? Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to paint you a picture of something a little bit more recent, all right? Has everybody seen a, a, a soldier, a U.S. Marine or a, a soldier in the Army? When they are ready to go out to battle, what do they do? They put on, yeah, they put on all kinds of gear, right? What happens if they go out on deployment without that gear? They're going to they're gonna get, they're gonna get messed up pretty bad, right? They put on flak jackets, they put on bulletproof vests, they put on helmets, they put on, they get their weapons, they've got extra ammunition, everything that they need. And the reason their gear is so heavy, because they have got to be prepped and ready and equipped 
for whatever is going to come their way. All right? Whatever comes their way, they have got to be equipped. So Paul paints the picture of a Roman soldier, and as we go through this, I'm going to try to paint the picture something that, that we can picture in our minds as well, okay? Why was it so important for them to be urgent, all right? Now, soldiers spend a lot of their time in downtime. They train, they stay prepared, they stay ready. All their gear is right there. So when, that, when they say, all right, we're moving out, whatever division they're in or whatever uh, uh, infantry platoon or whatever, you have to forgive me, I'm not familiar with all the terms, whatever uh, division they're a part of, and they say, all right, we're, we're going. Everybody jump in the Humvees, and we're headed out to such and such. And here's what we're going to be up against. Here's what we're fighting. The officers are briefed. They know what's going on. They let their particular unit know what's going on. And then what do they do? They've got to be ready, urgent, done, get their equipment in. Because if they hem haul around and they don't get moving, they're going to either get left behind, they're going to get punished, or they're going to get hurt. Okay? They've got to be prepared, equipped, and ready to go at a moment's notice. At a moment's notice. We are to make a conscious effort of putting on the armor of God. Putting on that armor, okay? We have to make a conscious effort. Now, I want you to remember something. Again, this is simply a painting. Of, this is painting a visual picture for us to help, to help us understand what this armor is all about and what we're supposed to be doing, okay? This isn't about when you wake up in the morning, you're thinking to yourself, okay, I need to put on my belt of truth, and I need to get my sword of faith. And It's not about overthinking it, okay? Every, every armor, hey, Ryan, good luck, buddy. Every armor that we're talking about over these next couple of weeks is part of our relationship with God. When we talk about the belt of truth, which we'll talk about here in a second, we're talking about the truth of God's word, the truth in his promises. We're talking about living an honest and truthful lives. This is something that we do. This is something we equip ourselves with and we put on. God has already given it to us. He's given us the equipment that we need. It's up to us to put it on, and it's up to us to wield it, to use it, right? Okay? In battle. So, the belt of truth, the truth holds everything together. This is why he mentions it first. If we're looking at a Roman soldier, his weapons are all... Uh, uh, situated on his belt. His belt holds all the other thing together, the chest plate, everything. Even his shield is linked and attached to his belt. So when they have to march or run or whatever, they are able to make this, all of this come together and not lose anything, okay? So the belt of truth, this holds the whole thing together. So when you think of the truth of God's word, when you think of God's promises, when you think of the victory that we have through Jesus Christ, that is truth. That holds everything else together. So when we talk about faith, when we talk about righteousness, when we talk about peace, when we talk about all of that, the belt of truth, truth holds this all together, okay? This is why truth is attacked first. Because if Satan can get you to doubt, if he can get you to be deceived, everything else falls apart. If Satan is able to feed you lies and get you to believe them, everything else falls apart. And I'll give you possibly the most famous example, Eve in the garden. What did God tell Adam and Eve? He said, everything in this garden is amazing, delicious, wonderful, beautiful, and it all belongs to you. But this particular tree, leave it alone. Don't eat it. 
Because as soon as you eat it, you will die. This is what he told Adam and Eve. What did Satan tell Eve? What did the serpent come up to Eve and say to her? Does anybody know? Zoe? Exactly right. The first thing he did was attack truth. The first thing he did was deceive Eve. He said, did God really say this? And she did good at first. She said, he did say this. He said this and this. And then Satan comes back and says, okay, but you're not really going to die. Actually, here's what's going to happen. When you eat it, you're going to be like God. Now, if somebody tells you that you can be greater than you are, if you can be better, if you can be more beautiful, more something, more smarter, whatever the case is, you're going to, that's going to sound intriguing, right? That's going to sound pretty good, okay? She wasn't, she, she, she was, she allowed herself to be deceived, okay? And uh, Adam was standing there right beside her. So she was deceived and ate. She handed the apple to her husband who stood there the entire time, didn't, didn't say anything against it, and he ate as well, okay? So they were both deceived. The enemy attacked truth first. That is the first thing to go is truth. The first thing to go is truth because if the enemy can get you to doubt God's love for you, if the enemy can get you to doubt that we have the victory through Christ Jesus, if the enemy can get you to doubt that you need to be part of a, an encouraging, loving church family who's teaching the word of God, if the enemy can get you to doubt all of this, and, and, and divide you from people who love you and encourage you, can get to divide you from the word of God, if the enemy can get you to believe these lies, everything else falls apart. Lies like, the Bible was written a long time ago. What does it have to really say to us today? How many of you heard that? People say that about our own constitution. It was just written, what, 250 years ago? Not 50 yet, I guess, 240-some years ago. Our Constitution was written, and how many people today say, well, that was written a long time ago by old, crusty white guys, and, you know, we really, that, we need to change some things. We don't really need to apply it as it's written because it was written so long ago in such a different time. And if they say that about our Constitution, it was only written a couple hundred years ago, they say it far worse about the Bible that was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, Okay. Believe me, people are, people are reasoning this out in their heads and trying to say, well, I don't really need to follow along or believe what the Bible says because it was written a long time ago. It was written by men. And what's, the, you know, what's the point? How can I really know if it's true or not, if the things written in the Bible are true or not? If the enemy can get you to swallow that lie, everything else falls apart. If the enemy can get you to fumble that belt of truth. If the enemy can get you to fumble the truth and believe that deception, everything else falls apart. If you can't believe the word of God, everything else falls apart. If I can't believe the word of God, how do I know I'm really saved? How do I know I'm really going to go to heaven when I die? How do I know I've got the power of the Holy Spirit and the joy of Christ living on the inside of me? How do I really know this? How do I really know that? If I can't believe the Bible, everything else is up in the air. I may as well do what I want, when I want, and how I want, because what's the point? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So many people live their lives that way. They say there's no such thing as truth. Here's the other big lie is truth is relative. 
right? Holly, what's true for you? That's great. I'm glad you believe in the Bible, but that's not my truth. That's not my truth. My truth is this. Well, would you go up to your teacher and say, two plus two, maybe four for you, but that's not my truth. That's not how math works for me. And I hope you can understand that because this test is biased for your truth. I want you to go up to your math teacher and give them that line and see how that comes along. Yeah, I know. No, I don't want you to. <laughs> I want you to bring that up to them and maybe start a good conversation, but don't do it for real. Don't be a jerk about it. But do you see, what I'm, do you see how that completely breaks down? When you think about that logically, truth is truth, okay? Everybody may believe the wrong thing, but everybody can't believe the right thing if all this stuff is different. Does that make sense? Okay? You can't say that the Bible's true and the Quran is true and the, the, the uh, whatever, Hindu books and Buddhist books and all this other stuff. You can't say all of it is true because it all contradicts each other. The Bible says Jesus is the only way. So if Jesus is the only way and we say, no, but these are some ways for other people, then you're saying the Bible's not true. You see where I'm coming from? You can't say 2 plus 2 is 4, but 2 plus 3 is also 4, right? You can have all these things be wrong, but you can't have everything, everything be right when they contradict each other like that. So do you, see how, do you see how mind-twisting this can be and how deceiving this can be? Because there are actually people that say, well, I believe this part of the Bible, but not that part of the Bible. If you can't believe every part of the Bible, then the whole thing is hogwash. Okay? We've got to know the truth. We've got to know the truth, and we cannot let the enemy deceive us and put doubt in our minds about the Word of God. Here's one that came up recently. In the last few years, there's a, a pastor out west who wrote a book essentially laying out the premise that hell does not exist. Because how could a God who loves so much create a place as horrible as hell? God loves you no matter what, and he would never send you to hell. Tell me how that affects your faith, how that affects your belief, because if all of a sudden there's no hell, if all of a sudden there's no penalty for wrongdoing, then that wipes away the sacrifice that Jesus made, because if there's no hell, why would Jesus need to make a sacrifice? If there's no punishment for sin, if there's no punishment for disobeying God, for wrongdoing, Jesus would not have had to come. So you see, if you wipe out hell, you wipe out the rest of the gospel along with it. You wipe out the rest of what God said about punishing wrongdoing and punishing sin, okay? So these are just some, these are just some, there's tons of them out there. There's a ton of stuff out there that's trying to deceive us and get us to question everything we know about God, okay? This is why it is so critical and so important to put on that belt of truth. And what I mean by that, I mean stay in God's word. Be in communion with God. Pray. Worship. Talk to God. Know what you believe. Know, what, know God's word. I don't think, I'm not saying you have to have the whole Bible memorized front to back. I'm simply saying know who you are in Christ Jesus. Know the truth. Okay? Be an honest and upright person. Be a truthful person. When you talk to people and deal with people, be truthful and honest with them. 
all right? So not only do we need to know God's truth so that everything is held together, but we need to walk in that truth as well. We need to be honest and upright people. We need to be telling the truth. We need to be walking in truthfulness, okay? That's something that we do. That's something we do from our point, from our uh, perspective. Quick story. How many of you have, been, have ever been confronted with the truth? Like maybe you've done something and you're kind of either not really realizing it was the wrong thing or you kind of knew it was the wrong thing, but you didn't think anybody would find out. And when somebody confronts you with it, how does that feel? Has anybody ever been confronted with their own wrongdoing, confronted with the truth about something that you've done? Yeah, I have. You feel like trash, don't you? Like you feel guilty, you feel convicted, you feel just crushed and horrible. Do you guys remember King David? King David, what happened? He was, one of the, he was the most famous king of Israel's history. They still talk about him today. In fact, I heard him mentioned just on the news just the other day. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, in a news uh, interview had mentioned King David. I'm like, oh, wow, that's so cool. You know, anyway. But King David, the most well-known, famous king in all of Israel, was at home when he should have been out with his soldiers, he should have been out to war. The Bible says he was home, walking on the roof, checking things out, and across the street he saw a woman bathing on the roof. Now, why she was bathing up there, I have no idea, but he saw her. He, be he, he said, you know what, I'm the king, I want that. So he calls to have her brought over. She comes over. You guys know what happens. She gets pregnant. And to hide what he did, he actually calls in her husband, who was, in, who was with the army, with Israel's army, out in battle. He actually has him escorted home, brought home, and says, tell me about how everything is going on the battlefield. Oh, that's fantastic. Hey, spend the night with your wife. What was he trying to do? He's trying to cover up his sin, right? Because he figured if her husband slept with her, then the baby would be his. Everybody would assume that. David's sin would be, never be found out. It's all good to go, right? Her husband was so honorable. He said, my men are out there on the battlefield. How can I possibly spend the night in the comfort of my own home with my wife? That would be dishonoring my, my soldiers, my fellow soldiers. So he actually slept on the porch. Didn't go how David wanted it to go. All right? So when he was, went back to the battlefield, do you know what David did? Does anybody know what he did? He actually sent a note he sealed a note with instructions and said, we deliver this to the officer, please. So this guy carried a note to the officer in charge of him. That note said, put this gentleman on the front lines, and when he's up there in the thick of battle, everybody back away. What was he doing? Killing. He, he wanted him dead. He wanted him dead because things didn't go how he wanted. David was feeling shame and guilt for what he had done. So he actually had this man killed. This man delivered his own death certificate to the front lines of battle. He didn't even know it because it was sealed. You can't, you, know, you can't open the seal unless you're the one that's supposed to receive that letter. So he was delivering his own death note to his officer in charge. So when they were in the heat of battle, the men stepped back. Uriah, the name of her husband, Bathsheba's husband, was killed in battle. So then here, all this transpires, right? So Nathan, the prophet, the man of God, confronted David. He told him a story. He didn't come right out with it. He told him a story that very closely related to what had happened with David. And, the, and Nathaniel said, David, what would you do in this situation? And David said, 
oh my goodness, I would, basically all said, I would punish that man to the firmest, however, the, the, the worst punishment he could possibly get, I would punish him. And Nathan, and Nathan says, David, do you know who this man is? It's you. Basically, uncovering David's sin, knowing exactly what happened, here's your sin, David, laid bare for everyone to see. The person in the story I just told you is you. David was confronted with the truth. His eyes were opened, and the Bible says he was crushed. He was like, oh my gosh, what, is, what have I done? He was deceiving himself. Do you see how that happens? He was doing all of this wrong, horrible stuff, and yet he was deceiving himself, telling himself that it was hidden, nobody's going to find out, it's not a big deal, whatever, until Nathan the prophet comes to him and, and reveals this to him, lets him know that God has seen what has happened, and, is, and, and David was just crushed. He was crushed. Okay, so he is full on in repentance to God. Full on in repentance to God. And then later on, we see in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, this is what David writes to God. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out everything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. David was humbled by this whole incident. He was humbled and brought down. He was ashamed with himself. He pleaded to God. He asked God to forgive him. God forgives him of this sin because David is, David is even referred to as a man after God's own heart. And it's because of an incident like this. Not because he sinned so horribly, but because he was so incredibly humble when he was faced with the truth. So when we are faced with the truth, the truth of God's word, we need to be like David here as he was humble in, in, in uh, Psalm 139. We, we need to say, search me, God. Show me any rotten, awful thing in my heart. Show me so that I can change, so that I can, through your grace and through your love and through your wisdom, fix it, it that, that I can be healed, that I can be uh, uh, lead me along the path of everlasting life. David's saying, Show me my heart, God. Show me the truth that lies within my heart, the things that I would even be trying to hide from myself. Show me all of it so that I can be the man that you have created me to be. So that's how important truth is. When, we, when Paul talks about the belt of truth, everything, everything is held together with this belt. Everything is held together by the truth of God's word. And we cannot be deceived. Do not be deceived. When you hear these lies out in the world, when the enemy tries to tell you these lies, when you have friends that come up and say, oh, well, the Bible's not really true. You know that, right? You need to be, you need to be like, no, the Bible is true. I believe it in my heart, and here's what I've seen it do in my life. Here's what I've seen the Word of God do in my life. Here's what I've seen the power of God do in my life. We have got to be ready and equipped because the battle that we are in is urgent. And if we're not equipped we're going to get whipped. You guys like that? Something to think about? If we are not equipped, we're going to get whipped. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get broken. If we are not equipped and ready for the battle that we are in, we are already in it. We are in the heat of battle. So we've got to be ready to go. We've got to be equipped, and we have to know where we stand. Going back real quick to those first five points. Satan was defeated on the cross, the penalty for sin has been paid once for all. Sin's power has been broken. Satan and his army, even though they continue to fight, divide, and discourage us, we are commanded to be, number five, we are commanded to be equipped and prepared. 
God gives us what we need. We simply need to take on that armor, put on that armor, take on God's truth, and next week we'll talk about a few other pieces of armor that we see in Ephesians here with Paul. Do you guys understand that? Do you understand the weight of the battle that we're in and how important it is and how life-altering it is if we're not equipped and ready for that battle? So stand up. Everybody stand up. The worship team's coming in. Stretch out a little bit. <clears throat> Here's what I want from you guys tonight. Is everybody listening? Worship team, yeah, you guys can head on up as soon as everybody's in here. You guys can head on up. Here's what I want from you guys tonight, okay? I want you to loosen up. I want you to be ready. We talked tonight about one piece, simply one piece of the armor of God. All right? And that one piece is pretty, pretty important. It's pretty critical, okay? And the enemy is going to try to take that away from you. If the enemy can cut that belt and get the other equipment that we're going to talk about next week to drop and to fall away and to get your life in turmoil, he's going to do it. We have to be ready to stand our ground. We have to be ready to stand our ground of victory. Remember, we already have the victory through Christ Jesus. So we need to stand firm against everything the enemy would try to bring our way. Depression, poverty, uh, doubts, unbelief, friends who turn their back on you. Uh, family that's, that's fighting and, and, and you've got just some weird stuff, go, crazy stuff going on at home. Anything that the enemy would try to throw your way, you've got to be ready to stand firm against it. Know who you are in Christ and know the victory that you already hold. As we worship tonight, I want you to know that you as a Christian, as a believer, as a member of the body of Christ, as part of the family, you have a position of victory. You have a position of righteousness. You have a position of power. That power makes you invincible, but only if you are ready to use it and only if you are equipped to do so. And part of that being ready is having an open heart to God the Father. And part of the way we have an open heart to God the Father is by worshiping Him. Don't worry about people around you. Don't talk to anybody around you. I want eyes on him, hands lifted for him, the author of truth. God is so good, so amazing, so wonderful. He has such an awesome plan for your life. He has given you such awesome equipment to use in the battle that we are in. How can we do anything but worship him? How can we do anything but show him our love and admiration because of what he has done for us? So I want you to worship tonight, and I don't want you to worry about who's around you. I want you to focus on God. I want you to focus on the truth of God's word and how Jesus has come and paid the price for us and how he has equipped us to fight this battle. And he loves us and is ready to lead us straight through to the end.